0: This is The Shift Podcast.
1: We're going to just shift gears a little bit, and we're going to take you into the incredibly bizarre, dark, twisted world of K-pop. And we owe this topic tonight to Jason Manalis, because as you know, Sunshine Sparkle Pants is the biggest, the biggest fanboy of BTS this side of the Pacific. I think he might even be the
2: president of the fan club. In I, Canada.
1: Honestly, I would not be shocked. Uh, His girlfriend, Sabrina, tweeted out, I think it was yesterday, that when they were out, I guess, shopping or they were out somewhere at the mall, Jason apparently squealed and giggled when he saw these life-size poster cutouts of a couple of members of BTS and had to take a photo next to them. Like, he's so into BTS, he just, he can't help it. You know, he gets absolutely over the joy excited. And here's the thing. Jason isn't alone. BTS is literally one of the biggest bands in the world today. They transcend borders. They transcend the language barrier. They transcend just about everything that limits music to just being known in one region of the world. And BTS isn't alone in that either. A bunch of other K-pop artists and bands have managed to do this over the past, oh, let's say 30 years, going back to really the late eighties, early nineties. And that's when the industry really took off. So to give you some context, think of it as the musical edition of Hollywood. When we know And these stories continue to pop up all the time. There are scandals in Hollywood. There are reports of uh, massive, massive amounts of sexual assault, sexual abuse, a whole bunch of harassment. Well, to an extent, this does happen in the music industry in North America. But I feel like it's so much more darker and twisted, the music industry in Korea. And that goes a little bit historically, you know, tied hand in hand with the rebuilding and the recreation of South Korea after the Korean War. In 1953, that country was devastated by the Korean War, and the United States injected hundreds of millions, in fact, billions of dollars to recreate that country, build it from the ashes of the war. Why? Because they wanted to create a satellite democratic nation in the Soviet Union's back door. They wanted a democratic country during the height of the Cold War to exist in the back pocket of the Soviet Union. So they realized we need to inject this tiny little country on the Korean Peninsula with a ton of money. Well, With American investment comes American capitalism and comes this idea over the decades from the 1950s into the 60s into the 70s into the 80s that industries in Korea have to be modeled after industries in America. There are some slight differences. But for the most part, I mean, globalization has made it so that many of the products that we use today are made in Korea. I mean, Ryan was talking about earlier, he has a Samsung smartphone made in Korea. Those are Korean components that are assembled in China or Japan and then shipped here to Canada. Korea has become a global powerhouse for so many things. And among them, yes, there's vehicles, there's gadgets, there's computers, there's all a whole bunch of things. But K-pop, has become one of the country's largest and most important exports. I don't have an exact figure for you what it means to the country's GDP, but I would have to imagine it's into the hundreds of millions of dollars at this point, annually speaking. So it is important that the success of K-pop is perpetuated and is built upon and is never taking a step backwards because as the country grows in strength financially, if it's so tied hand in end to the entertainment industry in Korea, it needs to continue to go on. It's become a science. Now, BTS is the hot, one of the world's largest bands in the world. Like I explained, but 10 years ago, BTS was never around 10 years ago. The Korean music scene was filled with other stars. And before that, If you want to go back even closer to 20 years ago, well, then you had names that were starting to emerge in the horizon of K-pop. Names that you don't know these days, but names like Boa, names like Rain, names like Seven. For a while, those three stars were among the biggest in Korea. Now, they barely register. And that's the problem. When you sign up to become a K-pop artist, you basically forfeit your right to do anything in your early adult life. If you're lucky and you're talented and you get recruited and you sign up and sign away all your rights to become a human being from the ages of, let's say, 17, 18, all the way up into your late 20s. The record labels take care of everything for you. In fact, they take control of you. This clip from the YouTube channel, Grunge, this highlights some of the more dark darker aspects of the Korean K-pop industry.
3: Fans in America may seem crazy, but they have nothing on the extremes that K-pop fans go to. According to Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the group TVXQ had fans tapping their phone lines so they could hear the calls of their idols, and some even broke into their apartments so they could kiss them in their sleep. Then there are the really extreme fans known as Sasaeng. These people go as far as installing cameras in their idols' homes and sending them love letters written in blood. And in one case, stole urine from a band's toilet and then tried to sell it to the highest bidder. About the only thing worse than fans are anti fans, who loathe a particular star or group so much they obsessively try to sabotage or even kill them. In one incident, a group of anti fans sabotaged a concert by cutting power to the venue, while another incident involved an online petition that generated over 3,000 signatures begging a star to take his own life. And there have been multiple attempts to poison K pop stars. One boy band member's mother ended up in the hospital after drinking a beverage meant for her son, while another star had his drink spiked with glue, causing him to start vomiting blood. Health Concerns If you want to become a K-pop star, you need to be ready to literally work until you drop. According to SBS Pop Asia, an average workday lasts 20 hours, which is probably why being hospitalized for exhaustion is just par for the course when you're a K-pop star. Crystal of FX, has fainted so many times it's almost become a kind of trademark. At one point she was doing a gig and passed out with a mic still in her hand because that is professionalism. And then there are the extreme weight requirements. Being fat is such a huge no-no that record label CEOs personally hold weigh-ins for their stars to make sure nobody goes over the prescribed limit. As a result, many stars almost literally starve themselves in order to maintain those super-slim figures. Racism Unfortunately, racism is rampant both inside and outside of K-pop. For example, Faye from Miss A said during an interview that during her early days on the pop scene, she was tormented by people who thought she only showered once a week because she was Chinese. And the singer Shannon is one of many stars who has been repeatedly called a foreigner and had negative comments written about her because she's half British. There's no creative freedom If you joined a K-pop group not just to get famous but to express all the music and creativity you have in your soul, good luck that's because the music performed by K-pop stars is as carefully managed as every other aspect of their lives, with songs generated by the same British, Swedish, and American songwriters that craft hits for the likes of Nicki Minaj and Britney Spears. Which just goes to show that you can manufacture everything, except for originality.
1: So you ask me why I have such an issue with the K-pop industry, and the answer is really quite simple, because it's a disgusting industry that steals the lives of all these stars who sign up for one reason, and one reason only. They want to be famous, and we live now in a world where materialism and sensationalism is often a lifestyle that is envied by so many, especially young Koreans who look at their stars in magazines at red carpet events and think, I want that. I want to be that. You know, it was a while ago that Brazil led the world in the amount of plastic surgeries that were happening. South Korea, I'm sure, has bypassed that by now. And it is scary the extent that some of these people will go through to look like the perfect Barbie doll or the perfect Ken doll. It is shocking. And when I say you give up your right to be an adult, if you were to tell me that, hey, John, I feel like I'm going to pursue my dream, my career, the thing I've wanted my entire life, chances are you still get to choose what you eat. You still get to choose what you do when you're not at work. You still get to choose who you date and who you fall in love with. And what you are associated with, the clothing that you wear, the things that you say, everything. But not for these K-pop stars. The most troubling part is that it's still ongoing. And it's not going to stop because I highlighted already the importance of the K-pop industry to the financial stability of Korea now as a country. It's tied directly together. So it's not stopping. I have a soapbox here because I'm venting because I want people to know that when you... Cheer BTS. Yes, you can cheer the individual stars themselves. They are talented. They are there for a reason. But don't cheer the industry. And don't support the perpetuation of the industry. They aren't exaggerating when they say that producers and labels have almost complete control over these stars. And no one would understand that better than K-pop artist Amber Liu. She told CBC Morning, there is an expectation in the industry to be perfect at all times.
4: Starting at such a young age and you know being thrown into the industry you know you're told what to do what to say what to think uh what to look like you start just kind of like how I felt was you know I was just like okay if that's what it is I have to do it if that's what I want if I want to chase my dreams if I want to um you know do what I like you know do this dream job that's what I have to do and uh, I remember that I was too dark, like my skin was too tan and I had to brighten my skin. Um, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I developed a lot of really bad eating disorders. Um, and even things like plastic surgery, which is, you know, I, I, to me plastic surgery, like I'm not against it, but it's a very like, uh, very important, like has to be well thought out like type of procedure.
1: It is happening way too frequently. And more alarming, something that I would encourage, if you're interested, to take a look at is what happens when these stars age out. Because, of course, there's an expiration date. When you're in your 17, 18 age, and then you become a sensation in your 20s, by the time you hit 30, you have to understand, this is an ongoing machine. They're pumping out stars every single month. So by the time you become 30, you've more or less become useless to the record label. You've become useless to them because you're older. You're known. You're not as mysterious. You're not as exciting and they toss you away and they don't toss you away gently and they set you up for life. They toss you away. And because you've lived the past 10 years as an adult, being told what to do, what to say, where to go, who to eat or uh, what to eat and all these things, you don't know what to do as a human being. And you fall into depression. You fall into substance abuse and you fall into even worse, darker things than that. So I'll just summarize here. You can cheer the individual stars. They willingly sign up for these things. But if you're talking about BTS, you're talking about the industry as a whole, just know it's not as shiny and as fun and as innocent as it sells itself to be. That's the image they're trying to portray because, as I said, the machine must go on. It's too important for the success, financially speaking, of an entire country with 53 million people living there.
0: This is the Shift
1: Podcast. In just a few moments, we're going to be connecting with our friend Dave Scott from Spaced Out Radio. Our final hit here with Dave to end 2020, and perhaps he has saved the best for last. He wants to tackle nine historic UFO cases that really need to be studied here in modern times with perhaps better technology assisting some of these very mysterious sightings. Plus, I'll also ask Dave, you know, what does it mean in the paranormal world to be so close to the end of the year here in 2020? That is just moments away before before we get there really want to quickly get to some of these texts trucker kevin saying uh wtf guys just got back into my rig and it sounded like you were playing queen on speed i say that is <laughs> that is kicks o'donnell you can credit ryan for that yep. one
0: I just found it and knew it was so horrible. I needed to show everyone about it. You
1: know, I needed to share that.
0: I can't be the only one who has to suffer through it. Yeah, okay?
1: no, no, you're right. That's I mean, it. Uh, certainly our listeners got some uh, got some interesting experiences uh, tonight on Are You OKs? You hear that song? It's that time on the night. Dave Scott, spaced out radio, joining us here in
5: just radiocom dot com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including it out to Bumblefoot. And reading up on Captain Shirk's SOR Newswire, follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show. We're going to connect with John and the shift here in Vancouver. John, how's it going, man? Doing well, Dave. How you doing? I am doing fantastic. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays to you and all your listeners. We appreciate joining you.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's nice to catch up with you. It's our final cross-appearance between each other to end 2020. So I'm hoping that you saved the best for last.
5: Well, I got to ask you, you know, how does Shane get a night off (laughs) <laughs> After just getting promoted to full time, uh, so, what is with that? Wait, well, he's already on the six weeks vacation clause, or what? Well, you know, he he's
1: worked hard, and uh, maybe he's uh, at this point he's earned it. He's got the right to kick his feet up, and yeah. I'm happy to you know uh, to do my thing, fill well, in where ready. I can, and uh, to connect with right. you here tonight.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, recently, I, I write for uh, you know besides doing the show, I'm a busy guy. I also like to bring out those old-school journalism skills every now and again, because I think we all get into it because of a piece of writing. But I started looking at some cases here about nine historic UFO cases that need current study. Mm. Take today's technology and really look into them. And I thought, you know what? What a great way to head on out of 2020 with some UFO talk and some great cases that happened in Canada, the United States, that maybe the public didn't know about. So I thought we'd go there.
1: I love that, especially since you're right, like technology has come such a far away from when UFOs became more of a normal conversation piece. So I'm very fascinated to see if this can happen, if we can bring today's technology into these studies, what are we going to be finding out?
5: Well, you know what? I want to ask you this and I'll post this to all of your listeners as well. Can you name me one major UFO event in Canada? In Canada? Yeah. Oof. In Canada. I don't know if I know one off the top of my
1: head, but if I had to guess, I would say there's probably one or two here in BC. Because, you know, when you get up northern, uh, when you get to northern BC, you know, you got the woods late at night, perhaps in the summer. Uh, you you look up at the stars and all of a sudden you might see something that looks a little, little strange.
5: Well, let's start off, uh, let's go back in time, shall we? Before I was born, probably before you were born. Mm -hmm. Let's go back in time to October 4th, 1967. And we're going to Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, where it's the middle of the evening, and this weird light is seen coming from the west. And eventually it's getting lower and lower and lower, and all of a sudden there's a giant boom, inside Shag Harbor. And hundreds of people eyewitnessed this thing Hmm. crash into the ocean. And nobody knew what it was. The Mounties were called. There was a Mountie who actually witnessed it. The Canadian Navy, the United States Navy, which has a base in Maine, witnessed this, and they're all wondering what the heck just happened. Canadian Air Traffic Control gets on the phone they are able to take all of their aircraft that are in the sky or it just landed, and they are able to account for them. They have no idea what has crashed in there. Now, this is known as the Shag Harbor incident. It's pretty much Canada's Roswell. The Navy sent down divers to check this thing out, both American and Canadian Navy divers. They saw it. But the weird part about it is when they went into the water in the same place the next day, Whatever it was, was gone. Hmm. Vanished. Now, there is some conspiracy theory behind this, that a second craft appeared, and these Navy divers allegedly saw aliens working on this craft that crashed to fix it. Now, whether or not that actually happened, we don't know, but... With the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw this, it is one of Canada's greatest UFO situations that we've had.
1: That's fascinating, especially because if it's, if it's happening at the bottom of the sea there— Uh, I mean, over 20 years ago, you know, we saw Titanic. Thanks to James Cameron, they brought one of those submarines down to the ocean floor. So what could there be uh, left over? Because I'm sure if there was an accident like that where there was a big explosion and a crash, uh, even if it's gone, I'm sure that there's got to be some remnants of that still left over.
5: Well, if you look at the Roswell crash or other UFO crash sites or alleged sites, people go in there and they will actually bring metal detectors. And they will still find pieces because when the military comes in, they do a quick sweep. Mm -hmm. They get as much as they can that they can find all the big stuff that may be interested. Then they get out. What would be really interesting for Canadian history would be to send down one of these submarines and go down there and see if there is anything metallic still lying on the bottom of Shag Harbor. Now, I'm not going. I have a fear of the ocean because, you know, Nova Scotia is getting a lot of great white sharks around there these days. So I'm not doing that. But I would happily sit on land watching this happen to see if there was anything owned. Now, the unfortunate part about it comes down to budget. Okay, renting a submarine to do this costs a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it would be amazing to see if there is any type of crash retrieval evidence still underwater in Nova Scotia.
1: Absolutely. And I think you bring up the very valid point. Like if I'm not mistaken, even like the Canadian Navy, they don't have a ton of submarines. People make the joke like the uh, in Canada, you've got more submarines in West Edmonton Mall than the Navy does out there in the sea. So even the government, even the military probably looks at this and thinks, well, it's just we don't have the resources. We don't have that kind of money to be investing in these submarines like the U.S. Navy would, for example.
5: Absolutely. You know the other one also happened in 1967, but we're going to Manitoba, hmm. and this happened in May, where a a amateur geologist named Stefan Mikulec, okay, and there was a coin. Uh, actually, both Shank Harbor and the St- Falcon Lake incident happened, actually happened to have Canadian mint coins made in 2018 and 2019 of these events, which is very mysterious on its own, but. Stephan, here he is walking along the the shores of Falcon Lake, and he's looking for silver. He's looking for quartz. When all of a sudden he sees two objects in the sky, and one comes down to ground level, and its door opens up. Now, he doesn't see anything going on. He thinks it's some sort of Canadian or American uh, secret craft that's flying around because he knew about that kind of stuff. And he walks up to it. He touches the craft. It singes the, the tips of his fingers. Mm. He looks inside, sees lights, sees all these weird buttons, pulls away, and the craft starts to whirr. Like, like it's winding up. All right? And the door on the craft closes, and as it starts to shoot up, it blows some sort of hot air or gas at him. He goes flying back, burns his clothing, burns his hat. It leaves this weird set of dots in a pattern across his chest. Okay, now I know those, clothing, those pieces of clothing are still in at the University of Manitoba, I believe. Right. As part of the study under a great researcher named Chris Rakowski. He knows all about this. He's met with with the family many a times about this incident. Wouldn't it be nice to get some technology to see what kind of metamaterial or DNA, if we could use that term, I'm probably not using it right because I'm not a scientist, Mm. from that evidence on the clothing? Absolutely. Because it's been sitting there for 50 years. And it would be so cool to get independent researchers to look at that. Now, we probably know the governments of of Canada and the United States have already looked at this. But what does the public need to know about what happened to them? Because these burn marks that happened, they kept coming back. It's
1: fascinating to me because uh, when we hear about things falling from outer space, whether it's, you know, asteroids, meteorites, uh, comets, all these things, they usually bring with them uh, radioactive materials, right? Like we know that's where... Uh, a lot of those materials just come from the atoms that exist in space when they come to Earth are so foreign to us, they can be dangerous. So if these materials are still in that in that uh, university and we have more modern technology, better technology to, to study these things and know exactly what the compounds are. I mean, what could we do with that? See, again, that leads us to the question where, as you kind of put it, how does it benefit the greater population and, and that's really fascinating because a lot of technology, it had to have come from somewhere, Dave, right? That's where like we got smartphones. Now, these, the technology seems to have just ex- accelerated so quickly over the past 50 years. And a lot of people I'm sure suggest that it's not all
5: man-made. Well, I mean, here's the big thing. Where's it coming from? Mm-hmm. And where, what, why is it being caused? What is happening? And the public has a right to know. The public has a right to know, especially in Canada, we have a right to know what our government knows about this. We do know that they work closely with NORAD regarding these phenomena that are being reported. We know that they work with other governments of the world, namely England and France and Australia, all part, most part of the good Commonwealth, in trying to figure out how this is happening, why is it happening, when is it happening. So we are in the know, but is the public in the know? And if the public isn't in the know, including politicians, how do we get them in the know Mm. instead of being naive to the fact that this may or may not be happening? We already have the evidence. What's wrong with bringing that evidence forward? I got another one for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's go to, oh, let's go to Prince George, British Columbia the Prince George lights. And we are coming up on the 51st anniversary of this because it happened on January 1st, 1969. Look at that. And, and if you Google this Prince George lights, UFO, you will actually find an actual police report from the RCMP on this UFO. So here's what happened back in the day. Prince George, which is now a town of about 100,000, 120,000 people, only had about 30,000 residents at this time. And it's January 1st, and if you know Prince George, it's a blue-collar, logging, mining-type town with a lot of hard-working, good people. And here on New Year's Eve, all of a sudden, a row of orange, orb-like lights starts appearing over the sky. And they start glowing, and hundreds of people saw this event happen. So here's what happened. These lights, which hung around for about half an hour, started moving from about 2,000 feet to up to about 10,000 feet. Mm. And this is an area which, of course, anything north is patrolled heavily by radar because if there's any adversary coming in and we're still in the cold war at this point right if there's any adversary coming in they're coming in over the north pole so the the territories in northern bc right across alberta saskatchewan manitoba very highly looked at with radar so nothing sneaks in but these lights kept on hovering there before disappearing now The initial reaction and the initial question that I had was, could it have been fireworks? But we don't have fireworks that jump to 2,000, to 10,000 feet Mm -hmm. and then just vanish. And to this day, nobody knows what happened. And the people of Prince George, the majority of people there now, have no clue that this incident even took place. But there it is.
1: Isn't that a great shame? Because if dozens of people back there in 69 saw this happening, um, you know, I, I would hope, fingers crossed, that there are still some people here in 2020 who might have been younger and witnessed this for themselves that day on January 1 and can share those testi- testimonies with everybody else. And, you know... I wish it would happen again now with, again, more modern technology where we have so many great, excellent cameras on our phones and those who have invested more Absolutely. in actual, you know, better cameras to actually get better footage of it now. It would go on the Internet and spread like wildfire.
5: Absolutely. So the gentleman who reported this to RCMP, a gentleman named Mr. Walter Webster, it was 730 at night, he describes as white the size of the moon, yellowish orange in color with glowing around them. The objects appeared to have a square attachment fastened to the bottom. The top portions of the sphere had diagonal stripes across it. The or object above a radiant light and at times appeared very bright. I mean, you gotta realize back then they didn't have drones. So what was it? Right. I mean, I'm aliens. It, it's just so much fun to say.
1: Easy. Of course. I mean, that's that's the e- that's the easiest, most uh, fun answer to come up with. It's got to be aliens, man. And I think it's it's, it, it's such a great way to do it. especially because now, you know, as we're just days away from New Year's, people can start looking up into the night sky and, and wondering, hey, that thing that's moving, maybe it's Prince George lights all over again, except now it's happening in different communities across Canada. Dave, uh, it's always such a fascinating chat when we get to connect here. It's our final conversation for 2020 uh, on behalf of Shane and everyone else uh, involved with the show and all of our listeners who really appreciate and enjoy every single time you're with us. Happy New Year. And we look forward to uh, speaking, at, speaking with you in Spaced Out Radio in 2021.
5: I cannot wait. And you guys have been wonderful to allow us to be part of your program. And it means just the world to our Spaced Out Radio listeners as well. So thank you so much. Happy New Year to you and all of your audience right across Canada. And stay safe. We'll talk to you next year.
1: It's the Shift Podcast. Uh, Alexandra in our text message inbox asking planned obsolescence, greedy technique, uh, a tech corpse. Hey, giggly guys. Great to hear the B 52s. Uh, that's a rough treadmill for those kids in Korea. Indeed. I-, I think it's a tough one for a lot of people because they just don't know the truth of the industry. Now on that note of planned obsolescence. That brings us into our next conversation. We're now joined by one of our friends, and one of the best when it comes to breaking down all things tech. His name is Andy Barrar, digital lifestyle journalist at HandyAndyMedia.com. And since we're having this conversation tonight about phones that just don't last very long, we figured we might as well get an actual professional on the air who can help out sort of dissect this conversation. And Andy, uh, clearly... This isn't just a conspiracy anymore. A lot of products that we use every day are actually designed to start failing a few short years after we end up buying them so that we're encouraged to not just fix them, but instead replace it with the newest version and repeat the ongoing cycle. What we're talking about is indeed planned obsolescence.
6: Well, that's right, because you know we have our experiences and then you have these kind of like big theories that have been going around in tech circles for years now. And I have been... A big, um, pro that like planned obsolescence. This is like a real thing that has been happening with smartphones in particular for years. And I, I told everybody, I'm like, this is something that is happening by design. And if people don't know what that means, planned obsolescence, it's basically that the phone manufacturers are designing these phones to not last. In fact, after about two years, they want people to upgrade to a new phone. Now, if you look in the history of like, tech innovations especially if you go really back to like your grandfather's like fridge from the 50s or 60s those things were built to last they would last like 10 20 years but there's been just this fundamental shift as we moved into consumer electronics that they just want us to just have these devices for a short period of time and then make a big splash every year about the next launch and then migrate everybody to buy more stuff When in fact, this device works perfectly good or it could be fixed. But because of this, what we call planned obsolence, it was designed to break and for you to replace it rather than fix it.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because when we look at the old Nokia cell phone, that big blue brick, uh, that thing would just never, ever stop working. You could drive over it. It would still work. You could throw it in the ocean, it would swim back, and yes, it would still work. And obviously for the company, they earned that reputation of being uh, great phone makers, things that are durable and made to last, but I'm sure other companies looked at that and thought, yeah, you know, it's a good reputation to have, but it's probably not helping out their bottom line. What we want to do is instead make phones that are really cool but they break easily so that we get better profit margins each and every year. We're going to come out with new phones that are somewhat better, but the one thing we won't improve is how durable they are.
6: And you know what really upsets me, Jean, is not only did they do that, but their reasoning, oh, we're trying to reduce the carbon footprint, you know, and, and we're really doing this for the environment. That is a bunch of BS because the majority of the carbon footprint, 85 to 90% of the carbon footprint of smartphones comes from the mining of those raw minerals that they need. So this, it's, it's a big farce and it just upsets me because This is the same company that also just settled a 500 million class action lawsuit because what was happening was every time they would launch a new iPhone, they would launch a new iOS and encourage everyone to upgrade their phones to that new iOS. But what was happening was people with older phones were starting to notice that their iPhones weren't working as well. The battery was dying faster. Uh, Things weren't opening up. And Apple really had to settle a 500 million lawsuit because they were doing that. That is the quintessential definition of planned obsolescence. And it was something that's been going on not just by Apple, but by all the manufacturers. And it's increasing with now we have these phones with curved screens. Those are just. So breakable, you can't even drop it once. As soon as it hits that corner, it's going to break and you can't replace it. You're going to have to buy a new phone because the cost to replace it costs more than the phone itself. That's when you know this industry is in trouble.
1: Well, actually, I wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, I read somewhere recently, I believe somewhere in Europe, uh, this nation has now made it a law so that if you have an existing product and you want to just maintain it, repair it to make sure it's basically like new, you're better off doing that as opposed to buying a new phone. Because here in Canada, if you have even a slight error, a slight manufacturing defect in your phone, You're not better off sending it to get repaired. You're better off just buying a new one. That's the way it's designed right now. And in this country, in Europe, they've made it a law so that the cost of repair has to be at least equal to or cheaper than buying a brand new product. And I'm sure companies are worried about this because it's not popular here in North America. Right now, it's still so much cheaper for us to go and buy a new phone. Companies don't want this to become the new trend.
6: No, it's actually sad that that it took governments to have to enact laws to force these companies to do what was essentially the right thing. You know, why can't we have a society, a, a, a way of thinking, where we have modular, repairable phones? Imagine, like, I don't, I, 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 like, why don't we live in a world where I have this phone and I just want the latest camera, and I just can take this modular camera piece out, almost like a piece of Lego, and then put the latest. Apple camera into my phone. Like I just, you know, that just seems like a really smart way of of doing business. But these, the way that these, these companies, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profits. So every year we have to talk about the latest, greatest phone. But we could just talk about components and the components you can go ahead and go home and build your own phone, uh, replace your own screen, replace the battery. But we just don't have that. And now, like we just saw across the world, we have to force laws to make companies do this. And they're making more laws now so that when you buy a device, there's a repairability score on it to tell you just how, how it fares in the fact, in the event that it breaks, can you get this repaired? And, that's, you know, it's taking governments to do that because these corporations obviously don't want to do that on our behalf.
1: Oh, I love when you're fired up. <laughs> I am fired up.
6: <laughs> hey, sorry, I, I get so upset about this stuff. It makes me so mad, especially when I hear their corporate responsibility, like, you know, their PR spin about how saved save the environment. It is a bunch of BS, and, and they just, I wish I could confront them about this one day.
1: Oh, buddy, preach it. Yes, preach it. Love having this uh this emotion as we're having this conversation with Andy Burar, You can find his work at HandyAndyMedia.com. And, you know, Andy, I want to go back to the old Nokia, referencing that company with the big blue brick, the phone that will outlive you and I probably. Uh, I'm wondering, has Nokia also basically sold their soul? And have they started designing phones that are also just as easily replaceable and uh, breakable? Or have they stuck to the original philosophy of designing phones that are going to live basically forever?
6: Well, Nokia's actually pivoted. If you look around, um, you know, they're moving into the 5G space. They're they're really looking into the future because they I guess they're looking at the the, the smartphone market and and saying, you know, we rather create the technology that these phones are going to work on. So, they're looking at what's going on with Huawei and the difficulties they are having, which Huawei was a market leader in 5G technology across the world. And they're just kind of like creeping in through the back door now trying to get all these big contracts because a lot of people don't realize this, that they are one of the leaders in 5G infrastructure technology. So when we think of Nokia, we think about the phones that they used to build uh, in the early days of of mobile phones, pre-smartphones. But uh, they have been around and they're working on, on the back end, really trying to create the networks now that are going to power the next generation of smartphones with 5G technology.
1: Ah, uh, kids these days, Andy, they just don't know how good those Nokia's were with the original video games that came on the phones, like Snake and Brick Breaker. Like those were Those are the classics. Now, I mean, Fruit Ninja? Come
6: on. Doesn't compare. Well, the flip phones coming back. You're starting to see that that, you know, people are getting tired of the same smartphone. If you look at any phone today, they all look the same. So, it looks like what is old might become new again if these if they can figure out the hinge Uh, issues with these new smartphones, with uh, flips, these flippable phones, like the Samsung. Uh, If they can figure that out, you know, we might be having clamshell phones in our pockets in the near future.
1: Time is a circle, my friend. What was once old and archaic is now hot, new, and fresh all over again. I don't know why, I don't know how, uh, but 2020 has told us one thing, and that is to expect the unexpected. So if it makes a comeback, I guess it's very fitting. He is Andy Barrar. He's a lifestyle, a digital lifestyle journalist. You can find his work at HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy, before you go, just want to tell you, appreciate all the contributions you've made for us on the show over the past year. Happy New Year, my friend. We'll connect with you in 2021.
6: Happy New Year to you too, John. It's the Shift Podcast.
1: Filling in for Shane Hewitt. He will be back in 2021, but happy that you could be joining us. Us being Matt MacArthur. He's the technical producer keeping us alive and on the air. He is navigating this ship of radio celestial excellence and uh, doing a great job. Logmaster, how are you doing? i uh, pretty toasty, just uh, warming my hands over yeah, there. Yeah, it's nice and warm in the studio, too. I can feel it, man. It's good. Whew. It's good energy.
2: Yeah, I got keep, to keep warm somehow.
1: Every good ship. Needs a solid first officer, a first mate. I'm not a very uh, naval guy, as you can tell, but that is where Ryan O'Donnell comes in. He's the producer. Hello,
0: I'll be your skipper. Skip-a. I can't remember the uh, the naval uh, designations. I'm yeah, more of like I love, I love uh, military history. Always have, but the one part that I'm really rusty on is much like the boats boats and naval, <laughs> <laughs> naval combat i'm not i'm not great so i can't remember all the like i think the, the weird
1: the the most low the lowest rank you can be is an ensign right like that's that's i think if i'm not mistaken and our listeners i'm sure will correct us but i think it's ensign and then you hmm. work your way up or it may it, it might just be private i don't know i don't know hmm. i'm no expert could be private Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. speaking of logmaster, though Matt, uh, we, got this, uh, we got this counterpoint in the text message inbox uh, saying, okay. hey, it isn't cedar. And is it on YouTube? Because I would like to see it and I could tell you what kind of wood could be burning. Um, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube
2: per se. I, all I know is it's on channel 222 on the TV that we have here in the studio. Uh, I'm not sure what. Uh, I don't usually own a television. So it's on the Shaw, I guess. Mm. Like we have Shaw here in the studio. Uh, it's the frame channel, uh, ch- also channel 165. Um, I have it on authority from Cam in Surrey who phoned in on Sunday night, I believe. Yeah. Um, and he, cause he was watching the channel too and he seems to think that it was cedar. Right. Um, I would guessed randomly birch cause that's, you know, it's, it's just a type of wood and, uh. But it's Cedar, so I have it on good authority from him, but hey, I'm no—I'm just—I just throw the logs on the fire, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he's the log master. He's not a log expert. <laughs> I'm not a log—I'm the log master. I'm not the log expert. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Denise, uh, this one's for you, Ryan, saying, uh, good things come in small packages. Ah. That's what my girlfriend tells me to make me feel
3: like
0: that, so. But it works. Hey. I, I'm, I'm a man. I will take any compliment, one compliment a year hey. is enough for me to hold on to and smile. So thank you, Denise. Yeah. I appreciate
1: it greatly. Things are going to get a little bit weird because it's time for Are You Okay? And Ryan has promised something really, really fascinating. So let's bring in our good friend, Roberto. Yeah. All right. So good on the guitar. Execution, flawless. Ryan, what are we doing here tonight?
0: All right, well, let's just go. I'm just going to jump right into it, okay?
1: Are you okay
0: with the chipmunks? Hmm. You know, Alvin, Simon, and what was the other one? Theodore. Theodore, yeah. How are you feeling about them?
1: I I totally forgot they were a thing. Uh, I thought you were asking me just like the animals, and I was like, well, I, I don't know. I don't encounter chipmunks too often. Um, they weren't my favorite childhood, you know, like cartoon thingies. So I, I'd say like, sure, I'm okay with them. They make
2: my skin crawl. Uh, (laughs) The sound of chipmunks is the sound of, of just hate. And I, it makes my ears fill with blood and I just don't like the chipmunks. you're going to hate me in a minute here.
0: Okay. (laughs) So I got two things here, but the, to give you some context before I make Matt angry, The Chipmunks are no longer the kings of the holiday music charts.
5: Mariah Carey must have been nice this year because Santa brought her a chart record for Christmas. Her holiday tune, All I Want for Christmas is You, is number one again on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart. The fifth week it's hit the top spot since it was released, meaning it's spent more weeks at number one than any holiday song ever. Previous champ... (laughs) The Chipmunk song, which is actually the only other holiday song to top the chart. Jason Nathanson, ABC News,
7: Hollywood.
1: Wow. That was a yeah. shot of adrenaline right there.
5: Right?
0: Uh, so for me personally, the only Chipmunks thing I'm okay with is the Chipmunks Christmas song. It's kind of mm. wholesome. And I have some nostalgia for my childhood because my grandparents would play me a lot of uh, Chipmunks movies and TV shows. Now, here's the thing. When I was looking at this story, I went down a chipmunk hole, if you will. Because in about 12 years ago, for some reason on YouTube, everybody just started putting random chipmunk versions of songs out. And I found one. Uh, I actually there's a part of the song that's way funnier than the part I've picked out here. But it was too high pitched and it hurt my ears. And I thought that's going to sound horrible on AM radio. (laughs) But um, when you think about it, though, when you change the pitch of a song to be higher, you immediately call it the chipmunk version. Mm. So it is effective. So let's just ask this question: Are you okay with chipmunked versions of songs?
1: Mm, No,
0: Matt. You don't have to answer. I know already. Just no.
1: Just no. no. Yep. Not. It's not for me. It's not for you. Look, if it's if it's an acquired taste, I am far from getting there. Yeah. Okay. I I feel you. I tend to like.
2: um, It might take me a little bit to find this, but I like slowed down versions of songs (laughs) because, like, me too. Uh, they're really like just funny and weird and very psychedelic, um, I th- almost demonic. Yeah. Um, okay, here we go. So Andrew Ferrera brought this into my life. This is Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, uh, you know those those two chipmunks from uh, Full House. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a song called uh, "Gimme Pizza," and uh, it was it was like a it was just a you're a basic kind of kid kid song it's about a kids bop. Yeah. Uh, yeah kid yeah. bop kind of song about pizza but then pizza.
0: <laughs> horrifying
2: yeah, i love it though it sounds like ween it's awesome
0: it does sound like ween <laughs> um well I'm I'm really sorry Matt because I have a chipmunk version I found and the weird thing is this was released like 2 weeks ago which is kind of weird. Oh. Um this one made me sad, very sad.
1: Oh no. Yep.
4: oh
0: oh, oh. okay so here's the worst part they're never playing that again i know but the part of the song that's ridiculous is the part where it's galileo galileo when he does the high-pitched ones my ears almost bled it was really really funny in the context of this but it was horrible i
1: i can believe that yeah because that that was
0: uh,
1: like okay if if beer is an acquired taste that was a shot of tequila and no lime, no salt, just by itself and straight
0: whoop. patron from the bottle.
1: It, it, it burns, man. It, it does. It, burns. it does.
0: It leaves a sour taste in your mouth. Trucker Dan uh, texted sure. in
1: really quickly. Trucker Dan saying, "My last car was called Alvin because of the chipmunks. Every time I press in the clutch, it sounded like it was playing the <laughs> harmonica."
0: <laughs> See, that's good. I'm okay with that. I'm very okay with that.
1: <laughs> oh man! Uh, like, that's funny. leave Queen alone. Leave Freddy alone. No, oh, agreed. Totally you know, agreed. The, look, the movie was good, Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I, I think some people were on the fence. I enjoyed it. Um, it was pretty good. Leave it alone. Like we yeah, don't just, need yeah. uh, dubstep versions. We <laughs> don't need a chipmunk version. We don't need a country version. Yeah. We've got the original, and it's so good. Mm-hmm.
0: I will say there is one remix of Bohemian Rhapsody that makes me laugh and it, they change the pitch on Freddie's voice and it's absolutely hilarious. Like his, his, he just goes in and out of, uh, tone, uh, all the time. And it just sounds so ridiculous. Uh, I'll have to grab that uh, for a later (laughs) date. It's great. Uh, but, uh, let me ask you another. Are you
1: okay? Okay.
0: All right. Are you okay? Are you okay with fast food?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love fast food. More often than not, uh, full transparency here. Uh, after the show ends, I usually get, you know, hit the drive through on the way home, and then I have myself a little snack, and then go to bed.
2: Yep. Maddie? Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to eat it so much, just because, like, after a certain point, I mean, maybe it'll happen to John soon, now that he's passed the, in the big old 3 oh. sort of category. Uh-oh. But your body just starts to, like... Just like expand and, <laughs> and and it starts to just like not quite metabolize, you know the 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 whoppers and mm. the you know the big macs and just all that all the other you know corporate sandwiches and uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm not I'm okay with it because it's convenient and and you know hot garbage that's delicious, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm trying not to be so okay with mm. it in my personal life.
0: Yeah, oh, I feel that. I love fast food. I mean, I know it's bad for me. When I was young, younger, I mean, I'm still young, but when I was 18, high school, I could eat three Big Macs a week and not put on a single pound. Now, uh, I I'm, the COVID belly has shown its ugly head and oh, I'm yeah. starting to try to get control of that, but uh, it is noticeable. However, here's the interesting thing. Britain will now ban buy-one-get-one free promotions for food in high-fat, sugar, or salt, and free refills of sugary soft drinks in restaurants starting in April 2022. Wow! Yeah, it's part of their effort to try to curb obesity because Britain has quite a high obesity rate. So uh, the measures will also restrict where in a store, promotions on products can be advertised and unhealthy promotions will not be allowed at checkouts, shop entrances, or at the ends of aisles, I am very okay with that because uh, the marketing for fast food is dangerous. And this, I think this uh, this could work. Or what fast food companies could do to just get around all of this <laughs> is just make completely honest ads for their food, like the YouTube channel Cracked
7: did. My my name's Roger, and I'd love to tell you all about my new restaurant that brings you cooked food alarmingly quickly. I promise to make this quick as well, because I know that you are, statistically speaking, an exhausted parent, or a struggling college student, or someone else with neither time nor money. Money that you're still going to spend. Hi, hi, folks. (laughs) Did you know that your brain can be addicted to not just drugs and alcohol, but to anything, from exercise to people to shopping. We do, and we picked food as the addiction we'd like to sell to you. That's why our meals are designed to be the perfect combination of fat, sugar, and the only rock that tastes good. Thanks to the human body's natural reward system and the fact that sugar can be more addictive than cocaine, our food is too tasty to resist. Literally, your brain will regularly crave one of our burgers. Burgers just like, well, not this one. That's not at all representative of the muscle and fat we actually sell for this one. We had a team of food stylists and image specialists work for several hours. The muscle and fat sandwiches we sell are made by a 14-year-old in about one minute, but it sure does taste good enough until you want another one. Do you see this nugget? It starts as the whipped-up muscles of chickens, and then we form it into a, a zigzag or some nonsense. It's not good for you, but... We'll give you 10 for $3. So, frankly, it's sort of irresponsible of you not to buy this. Offering our food at impossibly low prices is another one of the ways we hook people, especially and ideally people in low-income areas. Oh, man. <laughs> that sounded like <laughs> the evil,
1: uh, cynical and twisted version of Bill Nye when he's doing like a scientific breakdown. Actually, maybe Bill <laughs> Nye himself is already like cynical enough. But I, look, I'll, I'll put it this way, Ryan. Like I watched the documentary from like 20 years ago, Supersize Me. Oh, and, who and, hasn't? And it yeah. still didn't stop me from going to uh, get oh, no. my fast. I craved a burger while watching food. it. Yeah, so like yeah. this, uh, this little YouTube commercial. I get the point that it's trying to make, but it's not going to stop me, man. I'm
0: going mm. to. No, get I don't it. even think they. They nobody's going to stop. Right, right. But here's the thing: it's not really about stopping. It's about making you more aware of it, and that's not really going to change a lot. I think fast food is fine in moderation, you know, have a home cooked meal, but if you haven't had a, you know, a McDonald's burger in a couple of weeks and you get a craving, skip the dishes. Boop! It is at my door immediately. Mm -hmm. And I am glad that it's there, but uh, every day or uh, yeah. And there's some deep rooted issues, especially in how it targets low income stuff. Like that's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole, but uh, I'm interested to see how obesity rates change when the UK changes its laws. Against advertising for those things.
1: Yeah. April 2022, that's when they will ban the BOGO deals. And on that note, got an email from Rich saying people were eating sugar, salt, and fat when I was a kid in the 50s, and very few people then were obese. That should tell you something. What it should tell you is that sugar, salt, and fat don't make people fat. Obviously, it's something else. Sugar, salt, and fat are innocent bystanders. I would say, like, the way we live has changed, and the size of those products have also changed. And I think they explain that and supersize me in that documentary where like an average meal a combo meal then a large size is now a kid's size in today's fast food world and what we have for a large size is like a gargantuan meal of four back mm-hmm. then in the 50s and 60s yep. so times have changed